Good morning, church family. It is good to be here with you sharing God's word. My name is Dan Spino. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, and this morning, we are going to continue <clears throat> in our sermon series that we started just two weeks ago. If you remember, Trent started us in our praying for your church, um, teaching us how to pray for one another. He was in John chapter 17, the last two weeks, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And um, today, we're going to continue in that series. And today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, 9 through 13. Um, that's going to be our text for today. The context for that text is actually kind of, it goes back to verse 5 and it moves forward to verse 15. We're going to touch on those a little bit, uh, but we're going to focus on 9 to 13 specifically. And also this, this text, in, uh, more generally, is actually part of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which takes up all of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, it's an amazing sermon that Jesus gives that we have recorded here, and this is kind of a piece of that in that sermon. So just a little context for you of, where, of the text that we're in today. If you remember last year, we actually went through the Sermon on the Mount. I think it was last spring, um, sometime around there, that uh, we took our time and we went through this, this sermon from Jesus. Um, so I can always invite you to, to check out our, our sermon library if you want to learn more about uh, what we covered in there. Uh, but today, again, we're going to be in specifically in 9 through 13 in chapter 6. And let me read that for us here today, um, just to kind of start us off in God's word. So it starts in verse nine, Jesus speaking here. He says, pray then, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. And if it probably sounds familiar to you, it's known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, my guess is some of you or most of you may have heard this text before, maybe even prayed this text. Um, and because of that, uh, I really wanted our big idea for today to simply be um, that this is a really dangerous prayer. Um, it is. Its familiarity is almost blinding to us. So when we pray this prayer, we may read this text and, and we might just move on without realizing what we've actually just said. And perhaps if we did realize what we just said, we might not want to pray this prayer. I don't know if any of you have ever had the situation where you're, when you're driving, uh, for those of you that drive, if you've ever come to an intersection, like a stoplight, and it's your turn to go and you proceed, as so you go through the intersection, you might stop and look up in your rearview mirror and think, was that light green? Anyone have that experience? Or maybe you're like driving down the road for a little while and you're like, Boy, those last few miles really have no idea what just happened. Anyone have that? Thank you for making me feel a little more normal. I appreciate that. Boy, how long has that guy been behind me, you know, following me? How long has that person been there? Now, what's actually happening in those situations that you are paying attention is just that it's so second nature to you, you just, you just do it, right? Like, so the light turns green and you go. You don't consciously think, the light's green, it's my turn, I'm gonna put my foot on the gas and I'm gonna now go like, because that's what I do. Like you just, you just do it. It's just, it's second nature. That same type of mindfulness is what we bring to this text as well. The Lord's Prayer is a common popular prayer and I bet most of you could probably recite it right now. You probably get most of it, if not all of it. Some of you might even use some of the old English, right? Some of the thy, thy will be gone, right? Um, that's okay, that's still good. Uh, most of us probably probably have this, but but did you ever stop and slow down and actually just pay attention to what it is you're actually praying? It is a dangerous prayer. 
a more gentle big idea for our time together is that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus calls us back to a proper acknowledgement of and a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father. So Jesus is, in this Lord's Prayer is calling us to a proper acknowledgement of our Heavenly Father and a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father. He's calling us back to this. So we're gonna spend our time today going through this prayer just, just line by line. Before we do, let me just continue our time in worship. Let me just pray for us as we look at God's word. Father, first we just pause and we say thank you that we get to worship you, that we get to just praise your name. We get to praise your your biblical truths and song. We thank you for that. We thank you for being such a good father to us. I want to ask now that as we put our eyes into this text and we start kind of pushing into this a little bit, that you would just remove any distractions that we might have. All of us have, have had a morning. We've come from someplace. We've perhaps even had some activities right before we got here. Just help us to kind of put that in the past, to stay present and not to be thinking through what's coming up in the afternoon, but to stay just ready and willing for what you might have for us in your word. And I do want to ask that you would speak, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint my tongue, that you would anoint these words, that they would bring honor and glory to our Heavenly Father, um, and that which is of you would stick, and that which is not would just fall away, and that you would be glorified. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we turn now to Matthew 6, 9 through 13, you're going to see that there's really, there's like a simple or just really basic outline to this text. Uh, there's first, there's an opening invocation. And then after that, Jesus gives us six petitions. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna focus on those. There's three petitions focused specifically on God. And then there's three about God and his work in our lives. So first, let's start with the opening invocation, which are really the first four words of this prayer. Jesus says, our father in heaven. Now, before he offers this invocation, you said, you can see Jesus says, pray them like this. So the then that Jesus is using there is actually linking us back to what came right before we get to this prayer. And what do we see in that text? Well, in verses five through six, Jesus talks to his disciples about praying in secret. It's not be like the hypocrites who look for attention when they pray. He says, don't be like that. And then seven and eight, he says, don't keep up empty words using many words like the Gentiles do. For your father knows what you need. And then he says, pray then like this, our Father. What Jesus is doing is he's centering this prayer entirely upon the disciples' relationship with their heavenly Father. He says, you don't need to draw attention to yourself. You have a relationship with your heavenly Father. He sees you. You don't need to heap empty words upon your Father trying to impress him or win him over. He already knows what you need and he knows you. Instead, simply say, our Father in heaven. Jesus starts with relationship. He has to. It's completely bound up with who Jesus is. Jesus, the Son of God, is in an eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Since before time, this relationship has existed. It's natural when praying that we would draw back upon this relationship. Jesus is forever in relationship with his Father. I have this quote here from Michael Reeves who wrote this book, Delighting in the Trinity. It came my way from Russ Allen. Pastor Russ says this is his favorite book. He reads a lot. So I was like, well, that's intriguing. I want to look at this book then. So I'm in the middle of working working my way through it. Uh, And Reeves says in his book, he says, before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. 
This relationship has always existed. Jesus didn't become son when he like came to the earth. That, that's not how this works. Jesus has always been son in a relationship with a father. And just as Jesus has done since sincerity and eternity past, he calls upon his father. Starting this prayer off with this means that what is to follow stems from a relationship. It's incredibly important that we realize that this prayer, this Lord's prayer is just steeped in relationship. It's a highly relational prayer. And notice Jesus says, our father. Now elsewhere in Matthew, almost throughout the rest of Matthew, Jesus is gonna talk about his relationship with the father. He's gonna talk about my father, but here he says, our father. He reminds us of our relationship with our father. You see, as a disciple of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, we are brought into a relationship with God as father. Now this is not universal. Not everyone can call on God as father. Only those whom he calls to himself through the precious blood of Christ are sons and daughters. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit on your life, calling you into this relationship. And then the Holy Spirit stays with you each moment of every day as you walk into this calling, as you continue to live into this relationship. And our hope, our hope is is that everyone will call upon, will be called and will answer this calling from God. But we know, sadly, we know that this is not true. So this isn't universal. But for those that are, as we read in Romans 8, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Only as adopted sons and daughters can we say, Father. You see, the cross restores our right relationship with our heavenly Father. And as wonderful as that is, that also presents a problem for some of us when we come to this text. You see, some of us don't have an earthly dad. Some of us have a broken relationship with our earthly dad, or simply some of us have pain or hardship surrounding that relationship with our earthly dad. So when we come to this prayer and it says, our father in heaven, it's like reading empty words rather than relational language. And in fact, it might even stir up pain for some people. Father, what does that even mean? How do I have a relationship with this father? Because of broken relationships on earth, it mars our ability to have a right lens through which we have a healthy relationship with our heavenly father. You see, we have a father and yet we don't always know what to do with that. And it says he's in heaven. So it's not like we can go visit him, right? Like, hey, it's weekend, I'm gonna go visit my father. It's hard. This opening line can be a stumbling block for some. How do we relate to God as our father? How can we? If this is you, let me encourage you, God is not meant to be compared to your earthly dad. Like that's bringing God down. Because of evil in the world, sinfulness, negligence, brokenness, because things are just not the way they are supposed to be, some of our dads cannot love us the way we want them to. But all of us who have received the gift of salvation have a heavenly father who is full of compassion. He's full of mercy And John tells us in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. Our father is by his very essence, a loving father, and he loves you. And the rest of this prayer will talk about what this love looks like in your everyday life. For some others, this opening invocation might just be too casual. We read it and and it means nothing, right? Like, 
God is our father. Got it. Been to Sunday school. Check the box. Totally get it. Let's move on. Perhaps God as father has lost its significance in your life. That's the danger of this prayer. Slow down and ponder for a moment this invocation once again. Our father in heaven. He's not like any earthly relationship you have. He is God. He loves in ways no other human can ever love you. He's not out to get you or to hurt you. Yes, there are trials in life and we're gonna get there even in this prayer, but he works all things out for his good and he wants to see you flourish. He loves you with a steadfast love and he has compassion on you. And even more, he's not just sitting here watching the world go by. He's not some impersonal deity, some some God that we just kind of like shout out to. He is father and he is in heaven. He reigns over all. Heaven is a place of superiority. It's a place that is above all that we see. And there is our father reigning over it all while still maintaining a personal relationship with you. Listen to these words from Psalm 63. This just really kind of helps us understand what this looks like. The psalmist says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips." when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is what it means to say, our Father in heaven. This opening invocation sets up all that's to follow. After this opening invocation after setting this up in relational prayer, Jesus then moves to the six petitions. And each petition is utterly dependent and calls us back to our relationship with our Father. So let's just go through these one by one here. First petition, hallowed be your name. This is the second half of the opening sentence, but it's a separate petition. It's not part of the invocation. Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or let your name be kept holy. Your name shall be revered. Your name shall be esteemed. You see, this is worship language. Jesus' first priority after calling upon our Father in heaven is to honor and worship him. And it's right and fitting that we worship and acknowledge the holiness of our heavenly Father. There's great risk for us in our culture and in our church family and that we don't fully acknowledge our heavenly Father as holy and to be revered. There is a place of preeminence our Heavenly Father should have in our lives, built upon respect, love, and trust. But this hallowed be your name language, this is impossible language for us to understand. You see, we've been muted. We've been muted by so much. Our society and our culture doesn't hold anything back. Nudity, swearing, sins, lies, instant gratification. There's nothing sacred in our culture. Perhaps there's very little that's sacred in our culture. In fact, if you're bored here today, you might even just go to a church down the street. If you get bored there, you might go somewhere else, right? 
Church membership itself, like, has just lost its place. Like, it's lost its meaning, its value in our church family. So when we come and we say someone is holy, someone is other to be esteemed and revered, we don't quite know what to do with that. We've lost our sense of reverence and awe. We've lost our sensitivity to what is holy. But here, Jesus tells us to pray this way, that our Father's name would be revered, would be honored in our lives and in the world around us. But why? Why should we honor our Father's name that way? Why should we say, hallowed be your name? Well, listen to Isaiah chapter 40. It's in verses 12 through 26. It's gonna be kind of some pieces are are pulled out of that. Isaiah writes, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? If that's not enough, he keeps going. And marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. If you have a scale at home, put some dust on it and see what that comes up. It's nothing. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Later in Isaiah 45, 5, we read, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. In Exodus 19, we have this image that tells us that like, God has come down onto the mountain. He's, he's speaking with Moses. It says in the text, it says that the Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the whole mountain just trembled greatly. And as Moses spoke with him and God answered, God answered in thunder. The next time you hear a thunderstorm, imagine what that's like to hear God. That's what God's voice was for Moses. We're told no man can see God and live. When they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's this really big moment in their history. The Ark of the Covenant's coming in. King David's on his throne. They're entering into Jerusalem. It's this like really important posture of God. And it's on a cart. As the cart is going, the cart stumbles and Uzzah puts up his hand and he tries to catch the ark from falling and instantly he's dead. Why? Because you cannot approach a holy God on your terms. Listen to what we read in Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And in Revelation, we see that it's God the Father and the Lamb seated on their thrones that everyone is worshiping. This is our Father in heaven, and hallowed be his name. Holy and with reverence is his name, and may it always be treated as such. My hope for you, 
my hope, my, my longing in my heart, my deep desire is that for you to know and honor your heavenly father will grow, that you'll just, you'll wanna grow in knowing him more and more and more. It's my passion as I lead trained ministries here at this church. I long for that desire to be palpable. So when people come in here, they just, they just sense that we just love, that we revere our heavenly father. When you pray this prayer and say these words, think of what you're saying, hallowed be his name. The second petition is your kingdom come or let your kingdom come. Now, Jesus has been speaking about God's kingdom since like he set for like since his earthly ministry started, right? What's his first words? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The whole Sermon on the Mount is an understanding of what it means to live in God's kingdom. You see, as God's chosen elect, we are to live today as if we are living in God's kingdom as heirs to the throne. Now, oftentimes in agony and pain and hard situations, we kind of like off quip, like, you know, just, it's just secondhand nature. Say something like, Jesus, just come and just take me home. End it all, right? That's not what this prayer is saying. That's, that's more of an escapist attitude. This prayer is in the midst of a larger sermon on the Mount teaching where, where Jesus is giving guidelines on how his disciples can live in God's kingdom, which is at hand right now. God is king and his kingdom is advancing. And one day it will be here as it is in heaven with full reign and rule where those outside the royal family are not allowed in, where there's no more weeping, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. Now we're not fully there yet. God's kingdom advances, though, as more and more people repent and come to saving faith. His kingdom comes as more people come to know him through this gift of salvation. So Jesus is telling us, pray then this way, to pray that the boundaries of God's kingdom will continue to advance here, that more people will come to know him. Yes, the gift of salvation is wholly a work of God on an individual's life. It's the, it's the move, movement of the spirit in that person's life, God calling them and them answering. But we are called to be the hands and feet to deliver the gospel to God's people, to the people all over, just to, to advance the kingdom and to let God use it for his glory. When you find yourself in places where you're rubbing shoulders with people who do not yet know the Lord, pray to God to use you to advance his kingdom. We're not left on our own. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. And if you're not, or if you're never in situations where you're not rubbing shoulders with people who don't know Jesus yet, man, pray that God will put you in situations where you'll start meeting people who don't yet know our King and that God will then use you to advance his kingdom. And for those that do not have the secure gift or that do have the secure gift, excuse me, of salvation, we are to keep living as kingdom dwellers, keep abiding in Jesus. Follow these instructions that he has left for you and pray to our heavenly father for his kingdom to come fully. The third petition is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven or let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this one, man, uh, we have so much to learn here. Do we really want this? When you say this prayer, do you really want God's will to be done? Right after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter eight, we see Jesus comes off the mountain and immediately he's met by a leper and he, and he heals this leper. The meaning of this is like just so incredibly significant. This man is like gonna be able to be brought back into relationship with the covenant people. He's no longer an outsider. He's been healed. It's huge. Right after that, Jesus raises a centurion's child from the dead 
He calms a storm. He has two demons say to him, we know who you are, leave us alone. That's in Matthew chapter eight. You see, Jesus has power and authority. If he wills it, it will happen. So when we see Jesus on the cross, we shouldn't think about what he could have done. This man with ultimate power and authority that could will things. Rather, we should focus on what he does do. He dies. Right before his death, in the garden of Gethsemane, he says to his father, not my will, but your will be done. And the father's will was to have Jesus die. See, friends, this is a dangerous prayer. Do we really want God's will to be done in our lives? Now, God has given us his revealed will for right living as followers of Jesus, but as we surrender ourselves to our Father and live day in and day out, do we really want his will? What if God's will is that you never get married? What if God's will is you never get that job promotion? What if God's will is that you never have children or that pain or illness that you have is never cured? And more so, what do we do when our family members in our church are going through these experiences? How do we then like try to like push our will onto them then? What do, we do? what do we do in those situations when we're coming alongside our brothers and sisters? What then? This is a dangerous prayer. We want God's will when the scholarship comes, when we get the promotion, when she says yes, when we have our kids, but trials, suffering, calls to speak out against injustice, that's when we say, Lord, let your kingdom come, right? Just end this whole thing. But your will be done? We want your will when it means our will, our wants, our desires are met. That's when we say we are blessed. And rightly so, you are blessed. Those are gifts from your father who loves you. He bestows them upon you. Those are gifts But to truly want God's will to be done, if you really want to pray this prayer, then that means you have to die to yourself. You must. It's the only way. In Habakkuk 3, we see Habakkuk writing, he says, verses 17 through 19, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, it doesn't get any worse for this guy. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. About 10 years ago or so, like I, I took this passage, Stephanie and I were just in some hard times and, and I took this passage and I just rewrote it. I'm like, Lord, though, like, though we're living in a city that we don't wanna be in, we were someplace where we really did not wanna be. We were in a condo that just had this awful mold smell that we couldn't solve and we were trapped in it. I was facing unemployment, underemployment, right? We were not where we wanted to be. Though all these things, Lord, I will still choose to rejoice. I will still surrender to your will. Own scripture, own this text for yourselves. Now, I don't mean to imply that surrendering to God's will will mean hard times will come, right? I don't mean to just say like, that's what's gonna happen. But God's will also does not mean that life will be easy. God loves you as a heavenly father way too much for that. I just want us to see that even in the hard times, I think we're good at embracing joy, but but sometimes there's suffering as well. And God's will is still being done. Remember, this prayer is all about relationship. 
It's a conversation between children and their father. And in that trusting relationship surrounded by love, the children submit, yikes, submit to the father's will and can say, let your will be done. But when you say it, mean it, because his will will be done. There's nothing that's gonna stop the father's will. Now, this does not mean that you can't pray for all the things in your life, even things that you want. We're, we're encouraged to pray to God for everything, to pray without ceasing, scripture says. Pray to God about that scholarship. Pray about marriage. Pray about the job promotion. Pray about everything and anything. Pray all the time. He wants to hear from you. But just because you want it doesn't mean our Father will give it or thinks that you need it for your path of salvation. And sometimes, friends, it takes a little while for God's will to unfold in our lives. And in our Amazon Prime culture, this is hard for us, right? I mean, you could pick up your phone and order something to probably be there this afternoon. Waiting for God's will stems from a deep relationship with your heavenly father built on trust and love. In Joshua 6 through 7, um, it's a story of the, of the story of Jericho. Some of you might, have, might be familiar with this. The walls of Jericho come down. They go and they take the city. Um, and in the midst of this, God says, devote everything to destruction, the gold and silver of mine, give it to the temple. And there's this man named Achan who in, in chapter 7, I think it is, we learn, he actually confesses. He's like, I gave over to covetousness and I took a cloak, took some silver coins, and I took a gold bar for myself. Now the Israelites move on from Jericho and they go on to another battle. And then in the other battle, they suffer loss. And all of a sudden they're like, wait, I don't understand. We were just wandering the desert. We just came through the Jordan. You like stop the river Jordan wall. Like, I mean, it's just amazing, right? You, you stopped the river from flowing. You brought us in. You said, Father, you said that we're gonna have this land. We're going to take the land. Why are we dying? And God says, because somebody in your camp has broke covenant with me. They find out that it's Achan. And what happens to Achan? Achan is killed. What's startling is that in the very next battle, so kind of turn to page chapter eight, God says, go into battle and whatever you want, you can take. If Achan could have just waited, if Achan could have just waited just just a little bit longer, God had provisions for him. But instead, he didn't come under God's will. Waiting for the Lord's will can be hard and not following the Lord's will can have consequences. And I don't mean to insinuate you're gonna die, but there are consequences for not following God's will when it's revealed to you. From a trusting relationship with your heavenly father, you can say, let your will be done. In Psalm 138, we read verse eight, it says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You see, the goal of our lives is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. It's not to make your bank account big, to be comfortable and to get whatever you want, whenever you want it, right? That's not the goal of life. No loving father will allow that to happen. But our heavenly father's will for our lives is good for us. And he will fulfill his purpose for you. As we surrender ourselves, we can pray Let your will be done. 
The first half of this prayer is focused utterly on our Father and what he does for his good measure, his holy name, his kingdom, and his will. The second half, these other last three petitions are on our Father, kind of focused on our Father and what he does for our good measure, the request for our daily living. So the fourth petition then is give us this day our daily bread. I'm indebted to Martin Lloyd-Jones here who points out this amazing contrast. We, we have just covered like heavenly father, like, you know, overall creator and sustainer of all things, the supreme God, our father in heaven, whose kingdom is coming, whose will will be done, whose name shall be revered, this, this big entity. And then Jesus' next words are, give us our daily bread. There's such a contrast here. And yet this is what our father, father does. He provides our daily bread. Daily bread refers to living each day, moment by moment, dependent upon him. It's a daily relationship upon him, looking to our heavenly father to provide as we need so that our trust in him continues to grow. The caution of living outside of this dependence is seen in Proverbs 30, verses seven through nine. The the, the author there says, two things I have asked of you, deny them not to me before I die. One, remove far from me the false falsehood and lying. And two, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. In situations of abundance, we tend to forget God. When life seems easy, it's easy to think that we can just be on our own and go at it alone, which is just kind of utterly ridiculous because it's your heavenly father who placed you in that place of abundance. But we think, ah, we got this. We forget about that. We lose our dependence on, upon our father. In situations of scarcity, whatever that might look like, we can be tempted to live outside of kingdom values. We can start to scramble and scrape and try to get by and, and we can even get angry at God. But our father, who finds our lives to be more valuable than all the sparrows, is willing to provide us what we need each day for that day at hand. Psalm 144 paints this picture of our father as provider for like everything on earth, including mankind. This is what our father does. He provides. And we are to look to him for our daily needs in each moment throughout the day, And it stems from our relationship with our heavenly father. Later in the sermon, Jesus will tell us, tell his disciples not to be anxious, not to, not to worry about anything, not to worry about what to eat or to drink or to wear. Rather trust what God, trust that God will provide for you in your daily needs. That connects into this as well. We can trust our father to give us our daily bread. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God. Look to him to provide for your every need. The fifth petition is, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is the only petition that Jesus like expands on. As soon as the prayer is over, he talks a little bit more about this uh, and what we learn both here and, and in that, just right after in verses uh, 14 and 15, what he highlights is that forgiveness is reciprocal. It has to be. How can forgiven people not want to forgive others? Paul will tell us in Romans 8 that we are all sinners All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God, which means all of us are in need of forgiveness from God. And God, who is willing to forgive, will meet our needs and forgive us. Now, we are justified once and for all. That is, we've been made right by the blood of Christ. That's not what this prayer is getting at. It's not saying, you know, justify me again, make me right again, justify me. That's not what this is saying. Rather, it's in our daily living when we give into sin that we need to have God forgive us our debts. And then we, 
are then able to forgive others. Now, this is hard. On our own, we cannot do this. As we reflect upon the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness we receive from God, we can then ask God to help us in our, in our forgiveness for others. As forgiven people, we're called to forgive others. It's reciprocal. A forgiven person can't help but to forgive others, but it doesn't mean it's easy to do. Not only does Jesus talk about this right after the prayer, but he tells us, and he gives us a parable in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, it's this unlike unrepentant servant. What ends up happening is his servant goes to his king. He has, it's a parable, right? So this isn't based on a true story, but he's painting a picture to draw out truth. And what happens is there's this servant who has this un, like unfathomable amount of debt that he owes a king. The number is ridiculously high. He could never pay off this debt. The king comes and wants to collect these debts now. And the man pleads for mercy and the king has mercy and lets him go. The man goes home, interacts with one of his own servants who has a, has a significant debt, but it's much more manageable, easy to pay off, something that he could easily pay, right? So in comparison, they're just completely juxtaposed, right? And the man does not forgive that servant. He's like, no, I'm not gonna forgive that. I'm not gonna forgive that. The king then finds out that the servant does this and he takes him and he locks him up. And the text says he locks him up until he can pay off his debt, which is impossible, The man could never work off the debt. That's what startles you in this parable that Jesus tells us. This is what our lives are like. For those who call upon God as heavenly father, they have received a forgiveness for a debt that's unimaginable. Instead of death, they have life. That's what salvation is. And we have this relationship now with our heavenly father restored. So then we are called to restore a relationship with others by forgiving debtors. Now, listen, again, this is not easy. That's why this prayer is so dangerous. We just say this glibly without realizing what we're saying. Perhaps there's someone in your life who you need to forgive. It's not easy, I get it. Narrow is the road that leads to salvation, but we don't walk it alone. Pray about this situation. Ask your father to help you. He will meet you in that prayer. So we can pray and declare, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The sixth petition is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now it's important to point out like what this text is not saying. So God as our father may actually discipline you out of love. Hebrews 12 tells us this. Our father disciplines us for our good. God as our father may also allow you to be in situations where your faith is tested. James 1, 2 through 4 tells us that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. 1 Peter 1, very similar, tells us the same idea. We read something very similar to that. We will have moments in our lives when we will be under trial, but it's for the benefit of our faith. It's used to make us stronger, to grow in our relationship with our heavenly father, to grow in our dependence upon him. But what this is saying is it's asking God to not lead us into situations in our humanity and in our fleshliness where we will be overcome and fall into sin. God does not tempt us to sin, but our flesh is weak and quick to wander. So we need God's help. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's what Jesus is praying for us. Father, help us. We are fleshly. We are prone to wander. We're prone to sin. Help us to not fall into those temptations. And Jesus also adds the petitions for protection against evil. Some translations have the evil one, meaning Satan specifically. Again, I'm gonna lean on Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love what he says here as well. He says, for evil here includes not only Satan, but evil in every shape and form. It certainly includes Satan. We need to be delivered from him and his wiles, but there is evil also in our hearts. So we need to be delivered from that. And there's evil in the world. And we need to be delivered from that as well. So Jesus is saying, Father, deliver us from all attacks of evil, whatever the source is. These last two petitions both look back to sins that we have committed and look forward to to, to sins that we want to avoid. We might be tempted to commit. And in both situations, we're called upon our heavenly father to help us live rightly. Now, let me make a quick note on on what's called the doxology. So at the end of this prayer, when prayed out loud, some of you may may have been included like another line that's not printed in the text. Some of your Bibles might have it in the footnote and it goes something like this. It says, for yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever, amen. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time unpacking this at all. I do just wanna say that this is, it's called a doxology that shows up in later manuscripts. When we look at the early manuscripts where we kind of base our biblical text on, it's not showing up there. So that's why it's not printed like in Matthew 6 itself. It's not, it's not canonical, right? However, the words that are said in there are still very much based on scriptural truth. And it's good and it's okay to say them as you pray. It's still biblically and theologically true, but just note that it's not part of Jesus' prayer as as we have in Matthew. So then what do we do with this prayer? Well, there's two quick notes. First, the Lord's prayer is communal. It's It's a corporate prayer. And in a way, it's also incredibly, incredibly personal. And on both accounts, it's relational. So pray this prayer in your life group together. Pray this prayer with your family. Pray this prayer in communion with others as God's called out ones, the church. We're gonna conclude our time in our, in our benediction today. We're actually gonna pray this prayer together. But also pray this prayer when you're alone. This prayer is so incredibly relational. It's a conversation between you and your father, drawing you back into relationship with your father who's in heaven. It's a good prayer to pray. And also know that this prayer is, is like scaffolding or it's, it's like a skeleton. It's like, it's, it's like a blueprint. This is a framework for your prayer. This isn't the only thing that, that you should pray, but it's definitely a blueprint for like all your prayers. It encompasses so much. And it's good to pray this prayer for sure. Pray the Lord's prayer, but add to it the requests and words of worship that you have. Your father wants to hear from you. Now, you don't need to pray lots of words to win God over, but you can pray using lots of words as you would in your relationship with your heavenly father. So that's the Lord's prayer. We're gonna conclude here our time in the songs of the worship team if you wanna start heading up. And 
I hope that as you pray this prayer, that you'll take time to meditate on what it's saying. And that in so doing, you will have a proper acknowledgement of and a proper relationship with our heavenly father. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Jesus, we thank you for giving us these words on how to pray to and with our Father. We thank you for the truths that are in there. Help us. Help us to remove barriers. Help us to remove our sins. Forgive us where we sin. Help us to hear and heed these words that you have for us so that we might grow in relationship with our Heavenly Father. And help us to forgive where we need to forgive. Help us to surrender to your will where we need to surrender to your will. Help us to participate in your kingdom advancement as as you would want to use us. Help us to honor and glorify your name as holy other. Help us in our daily struggles and give us our daily bread. We look to you utterly dependent upon you. Lead us each day for your glory. 